Electricast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are about to listen to the most entertaining and informative wrestling podcast out there. That is not a prediction. It is a spoiler. And this is Kayfabe Critics. Welcome into Kayfabe Critics on Missing the Point. I am DK Sizzle, joined by Mark Mark Angelo. I'm so excited to be doing this show. As everybody knows, I geek out about the wrestling shows. I'm always honored to uh, be asked to do them. I asked Mike to let me sort of lead the dance because it just it occurred to me in sort of a, a moment of inspiration today that we really never talked about uh, The Undertaker retiring at length. What I would consider sort of the biggest thing to happen in wrestling for many years, him finally leaving. And I think there was a lot of, you know, uh, there was documentaries that came out. There was like a lot of coverage of it. It was, you know, it was done, I thought, this time well, as opposed to the last time they tried to do it. But I think now that all that's settled down, I think we can have sort of a, you know, State of the Union type uh, discussion about The Undertaker, where he ranks for you, for me, for the outside world, uh, what was great about him, what maybe sort of fell short and like. I'd love to just go through, you know, just as a credit to him existing in wrestling, just go through some of the big matches and talk about like kind of our perspectives on it, mainly your perspectives on it, Mike, because I think his three <laughs> biggest matches are against Shawn Michaels. So uh, <laughs> let's just get right into it. I'd like to start off right off the top. There's a lot of GOAT conversation about around Undertaker. I would say it's probably the most hotly contested GOAT subject in wrestling right now. If you're on any forum, there's one comment underneath like anything about like who's the best like dude look at the numbers taker this this the streak etc etc where is he on your list and uh, just give us your top five and if he's in there great if not uh we'll have to talk about that yeah i mean the top five for me because i think you have to take into consideration like the in the in-ring work like their their abilities their drawing power number one sean michaels i mean i've always been a sean michaels fan that's we know about that uh, number two is Stone Cold Steve Austin, just because of the impact that he had on the business for as short of a time relative to, you know, Taker that he was in it. 
Three is Taker. Four is The Rock. Five is Brett the Hitman Hart. Wow. Well, I'm, so, I'm so glad he could squeak in there for you, Mike. <laughs> but I mean, if you think about those five, those are, and you notice that Hogan's not in my top five, and he could be the greatest wrestler or superstar of all time. But all three, all five of those people, they could draw, they could talk, and they could wrestle. And I think Taker is by far, I mean, he's the greatest big man of all time. But I think that's a cop out because there aren't that many great big men. Uh, so for him not to be in anybody's top five or at least top 10, I think it's blasphemous. Sure. But I mean, don't you think there's sort of a, a, a consensus hot take sort of going around in the wrestling community that he's number one and should be number one on everybody's list? And like, do you dispute? I mean, apparently you do because he's three for you. Yeah, I just I dispute that. That's like uh, just to make this relative for anyone that maybe not be a wrestling fan, but just listen to this because they automatically downloaded it. It's like it's the it's it's the Carl Yastrzemski argument for the Red Sox, right? Like he played there for you know sixty five fucking years, but but he's he's not the greatest. He was just around the longest. Taker happened to be, you know, he came in at the end of the Hades, or, you know, really where we thought was the golden age of wrestling, and then he weathered through the storm of the early nineties into the Attitude Era. But if you look at it, he had great matches great feuds and great moments in every single one of the eras that he was a part of. I, I do think that there, I mean, the reason why he's not my number one is just because I think Sean's a better wrestler. And I think, I, I think Austin was a bigger pop culture icon and influence in professional wrestling. I mean, but that's it. I mean, all, all that's pretty fair. I, uh, I have him at three as well, but my top five is actually very different than yours. Otherwise, <laughs> Which, which makes a lot of sense. What I do like about your top five, though, and I think that it's part of the reason Taker gets sort of knocked down to three, is you've always banged the drum of great champions are also vulnerable champions. Like, great champions need to put other people over. They need to lose at the right time. You know, they need to have these kind of redemption arcs. And I think with Taker, apart from the ascension after uh, he loses to Yokozuna, I don't really remember any great, like, huge vulnerable moments for him you know i i and i think that that you can level that criticism at taker but even more so like a hulk hogan and it makes sense yep. why he doesn't why he doesn't make your top five it makes sense probably why brett's five for you because i think that you hold that quality with fairly you know th- to tell a story there has to be ups and downs like this is what we're this is what, kind of what we're doing here and i think the less vulnerable champions i think do fall down your list because my top five is brett one obviously i mean we've, we've litigated uh, this obviously. already just scroll back in the uh, <laughs> in the episodes we've litigated this uh to death hbk number two uh taker three for all the same reasons stone Cold steve austin four and hulk hogan five so okay. i think it I, the vulnerability thing to me means a little bit less than impact and i think if I have, for instance, if I have Stone Cold at number four, I, you know, Brett's number one credibility actually goes up because I think he did a lot to, to put Stone Cold where he is. But that, because we're talking about The Undertaker, that same argument can be made for Taker with Shawn Michaels. You know, I think that if it's not for those three bouts between those three, between those guys, they elevate each other. But I think like what Shawn does for his size, being a high flyer, does for The Undertaker and like what, what makes him good at in actual matches? Like, forget the character. Taker was better at wrestling smaller guys. Like, he just was. You know, I mean, he had great rivalries with Kane, which we'll get into, but as far as the actual technical wrestling goes, I think he was just so much better with high flyers. And it's part of the reason that myth sort of exists, right? That stereotype sort of exists where, like, it's a better match if you put the size, the the guys of adjacent size next to each other. 
Right. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can see that too, because early on in his career, he was going up against, you know, statues and fossils, uh, like, <laughs> uh, like, uh, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, uh, King Kong Bundy, uh, Jake the Steak, uh, freaking Giant Gonzalez. Like, I, I think that was just an internal rib on him. But when you <laughs> saw him, you know, I think the first, I, I don't count Yokozuna as a big man only because he could just move. Now he happened to be large, but he could move. But the, like the first, big man that he fought that I believed and that was actually an entertaining match was, you know, Diesel at, uh, at WrestleMania 12. It's a good match. Was, and Kevin Nash wasn't known for having good matches. So when you saw that, okay, well, he could do with the small guys, all the big guys can. But now, you, uh, to your point, you get into Diesel, Sid at 13 was okay. I probably one of Sid's best matches. But then Kane, I mean, him and Kane had a 16 year rivalry that they could just yeah. tap into whenever they wanted. Yeah. And it's, and that's a testament to Taker, but also how good Kane also was in the ring. Yeah, I agree. And, but I, and, you know, I think it, that elevated Kane's character too, because when Taker showed up, it was that, you know, you remember the announcement was SummerSlam, right? Where he comes in, or was it WrestleMania 7 was his first match uh, against, Taker's against first, Jimmy Duga? Uh, <laughs> Taker's first match was, uh, uh, was Survivor Series 1990. Right. That's it. His first uh, WrestleMania match was against Superfly, yeah. Right, Who against Superfly, move? right. Who couldn't fucking move at all. And like, that's not a great match, but what is cool about it is Taker walking in and then being like, what is this guy, like 350 pounds? What is he, like 6'10"? They're like all guessing his weight and his height. And they're like, look at the fucking size of him. And he is picking up Jimmy Duca, you know. <laughs> He's throwing him around a good amount. There's one you good do that on purpose. You do that on purpose. What? Duca? Yeah, I mean... Isn't that how you say his name? Am I saying it wrong? Am I doing an email? Snooka. Oh, yeah. S- Why am I saying Duca? <laughs> Dude, I've been doing this with wrestling names. For, I've been, I called Hacksaw Jim Duggan fucking pins Jim Duggan for like years. I don't know why I keep fuck up re- uh, re- wrestling names. Superfly Snooka. Uh, he, <laughs> there's one great move where Taker ducks like a dive from him and he goes right over the ropes, but he doesn't quite make it. And he like bounces on the ropes and then like falls back over. But he does the first tombstone against him, right? Yep. So like you see that that move and but there's another criticism people love or level a taker that he, his moves didn't change enough over the course of that billion year career you know so you have guys like that and then eventually yes you get him you start to get him rivalries his first match against Kane the, was that the first ever Hell in the Cell no it was WrestleMania 14 in Boston I mean they've been teasing it uh, that's when so Kane showed up at Hell in the Cell in '97 right that's right yeah, uh, yeah. My, uh, I think it was uh, Bad Blood or Mind Game it was one of those right. uh, in your houses mm-hmm. and then. Taker uh, went through, I think, four or five months where he vowed to never lay a hand on his brother, right? They did a really good job building that storyline. And then it, it ultimately, after, you know, after, you know, he broke Shawn Michaels back at Royal Rumble 1998, and he, they put him in the casket, they lit it on fire. And then uh, in Boston, uh, 14, and you Were really you didn't know what to Were you there? No, 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 yeah. no. O- only because, uh, I mean, I was 10, uh, literally going to be 10 at the time. I had a suspicion that Sean was going to lose and I couldn't deal with being there in person for that. So, but you have that match though. You don't really know, Like you know, Taker can do, you know, Kane was Isaac Yankum uh, for his first run in, in, in WWE. There were no five-star matches there, but that's where the storyline actually elevated the in-ring. It made you so invested in that and they capitalized on that. And I think, you know, yeah, there's Sean, yeah, there's mankind, but, there, we're not talking about uh, Undertaker the way that we are right now, if not for Kane. 
Yeah, I had that written down. I wanted to go and it's thinking that's a good time to transition into it. I want to talk about the people that elevated him because I think that obviously the Canes of the world, I think the pallbearer character and I think the kind of the way that they weaved that into the storyline, one of the early moments of them weaving it into the storyline of the behind the scenes of the WWE, WWF at the time where it's like, oh, there's like all this weird dark art stuff going on. And he's, you know, and he played a great character as well. You know, like the way they had oh, yeah. the way that the, the whole betrayal goes down with uh, with Kane in the first place where it's like he turns his back and he can't get the urn and the urn. They do that great gag with the urn with all the green stuff coming out. And it's like the betrayal. And then he's always, you know, Paul Bear is on Kane's team for like the remainder. And it's like all this drama. It's like it's the opera of it at its finest. And I think that that elevates undertaker's character further because you're kind of with him through this whole like supernatural you know uh but be- you know, betrayal brothers father like all this kind of like high-minded operatic storyline that that brings you through and it does sort of cover up i think a little bit some of his technical inefficiencies early on and i think he's like he's a little bit like lucky to be elevated to that point at like would you agree or would you disagree or do you think it was maybe partners until before Kane? So I do think that uh, Taker gets a little bit of uh, of a bad rep for his early run in, in the 90s or, or in WWE for being slow and methodical. But that's what they wanted him to be, right? Lurking this like with this Frankenstein character that they had going for him at first. Yeah. At, at the drop of a dime, he could move quickly. He would do mm-hmm. that, that uh, over the head clothesline, the old school. Like he could move fast. But I, I, to your like to your actual question, I think that it, in the '90s there were three people, only three people that made Taker vulnerable. It was Yokozuna, it was Mankind, Mick Foley, and it was Kane. You did not know, based on how the feuds went, how he was going to do, and it actually crossed your mind that he could lose. You know, for Yoko, just a big guy, athletic, and it's believable that a 480-pound man can beat a 320-pound man. Like, that's just, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Foley comes in, and he's just, he's ripping his hair out. He's having boiler room brawls, buried alive matches, and nothing that Taker does to him will kill him. I mean, when he appeared on Raw the night after WrestleMania, and he put the, and he put the mandible claw in, in Taker, they had like a little foam coming out of his mouth. That was pretty fucking wild. That's the first time that you'd seen Taker like that. And then for Kane, all the same things. He was the same size. And there was this great storyline where Taker did not want to hurt his brother because he already thought that he did him a disservice by leaving him in the funeral parlor that was their home and when it burned. Like that is WWE at its best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like I was saying, the whole, the, the sort of pageantry of it. And I think it does elevate the character. I think a lot of times when people are talking, they are debating that the Undertaker is the goat thing. I think they're talking about the character. And I think the, the points that people make in order to elevate the, him to number one in their minds is he might be the best character ever, you know, longevity wise, storylines wise. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of difficult no to argue that he isn't, you know, but I think when you and I sort of have these uh you know dissections and debates i think a lot of it factors in with you know the wrestlers themselves the stuff that they did and when they did it and you know again i, I saying that undertaker had great partners especially during the run we're, we're talking about right now like leading up to Shawn michaels and i, I want to dedicate more time to that uh later but when he tosses mankind off the top of the cell you know everybody gives that's a mankind match to most people right like it's like oh wow that's this guy will fucking do anything <laughs> this guy will like yeah. literally do anything like he's out of his mind so people start to become huge mick foley fans right and but taker does a great job in that 
of like really fucking him up and like really selling it. You know what I mean? Like really, really selling it. Like he, when he tosses him, it's with this sort of cold abandon with that. He, yeah, he, he acts it, you know, and it, this is a big stunt. This is like, I think at the, at that time, I think that's the highest anybody had dropped. I think people have gone higher since, but it was shocking. It was the toss heard around the world at the time. And yeah, you can, you, people can rightly give credit to, I think mankind in that match, but I mean, Taker, I think, does a great job of selling it. You know, I think when he has a dance partner like like the Mick Foley's of the world, I mean, it's like you get, or I should say Mankind's of the world, you get magic, you know? And yeah. I think he, is, he plays a big part in that because, uh, you know, it's of, the theatrics. because of the pageantry of it. Yeah, the theatrics yeah, it, of it. Yeah, exactly. Like to know, you know, when you're watching that where, you know, I was 10 years old, you were nine at that time, yeah. right? You, mm-hmm. you just instantly went, I think he's dead. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's with one of those moments where you're like, uh, did this go wrong? yeah and you can just hear jr yelling oh my god that killed him yeah yeah that man is split in half i'm sure of it (laughs) yeah and then you just see taker just peeking over the edge and like not even like not 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 flinching he's like i meant to kill him yeah yeah and staying in character yeah yeah that you know now all these years later we know that that move was not cleared by anybody like that was not discussed uh and for him to do that and then do all the things that he did in that match. I mean, this is getting a little bit too in, in the weeds, but he had a broken foot in that match. Everyone, yeah. everyone always talks about the fact that yeah, Mick Foley almost died twice. Sure. And that's true. But Taker's climbing a cell with no holes in it to get up to the top, jumping from the top to the ring. The roof of the cell wasn't doing great either with those two big guys up there. Like the roof right. of the cell is starting to fall apart as they're up there and you're like right. so that adds some kind of tension and realism to it because it looked to me like it really was breaking and they're right. like uh, there's a moment where they're like uh <laughs> they kind of like gingerly step it off it that yeah. wasn't that wasn't <laughs> yeah. planned it was, right. he was not supposed to go you through the tell. cell yeah 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 but, it's it absolutely wild and i you know mankind does get that credit but at the same time when you have a guy like mankind and you're a real professional and you know my guy brett he bangs this drum all the time you don't hurt the other guy even yeah he's willing to do whatever I would argue I would criticize Rock more for how he kind of went over the top with mankind and like what he'd allow him to do. I think he took it too far, to be honest, because you know he's never going to say no to this stuff. But I think Taker kind of protected him in a weird way, you know, because he is kind of a pro, you know, he didn't let him die. I know he fucking threw him into a table, but he didn't let him die. You know, he threw him in the right spot. So, you know, you got to give him credit for being a consummate professional there. I mean, I know he has he's, his injury record. And I, I mean that in the sense of like injuring other people. I know it's not 100% clean as you're want to point out. But I think it's I wouldn't clean. say he was a dangerous wrestler. No, you know, he wasn't Goldberg, you know, like he wasn't right. out there like not knowing what he was doing. And I think you need a guy like that if you're going to perform stunts at that level, at the at that Mick Foley level, you know, or at the, you know, as we should, I think, move on to the at the Shawn Michaels level. So I think we all know the three matches. Where do you put him? One on top of the other, and why? Is that a tough question? Have you not thought about that? Yeah, well, I just think, so WrestleMania 25 is the greatest wrestling, I think, that I've seen, only because, you know, yeah, the wrestling was great, but also the theatrics, and the fact that this is 12 years after they had their last match. But wait, hold on, catch me up, because I'm not as good with the actual names of the events. Is that the lawn dart over the fucking, uh, over the the ropes yeah. and the so, guy fucks it up and he like yeah he nearly dies and he has to keep the streak alive by like getting up <laughs> basically but then after after that where he almost breaks his neck they right. go for another 18 minutes and right. that's when it actually picks up right so mm-hmm. i i think that's a true testament to both of them just the fact that uh, you know 12 years later there was so much interest in those two meeting for the first time at wrestlemania and that they did it 
It wasn't just two 45-year-olds out there just because of their names stole the show. Yeah, I mean, this is that, that was a half-hour match, you know, right. like, uh, like <laughs> all in. And these guys are old as fuck, and they're doing crazy stuff. You know, and right. I and I agree with you. It is a testament to both of them that they were still doing it at that level, especially Sean. To be honest with you, with the injuries that he had had, I don't think he enjoyed. You can you, there's a million interviews out there too of him witnessing Taker take that fall, and being like, "Oh, dude, no, not that." <laughs> like, right. dear God, are you <laughs> right. okay? Like, because right. him of all people, he knows. You know, I, I think Hell in a Cell is number two. Right? Uh, that's the that's the first Hell in a Cell. I think. The fact that that main event is show and neither of those men were champion. And, you know, you have the introduction of Kane. Yeah, Monster Monsters Kane comes out with Paul Bear, which gives Shawn Michaels the chance to crawl out of his a pool of his own blood and escape uh, this, right. this beatdown that he'd be receiving. And it's the first ever Hell in a Cell. It might still be the best ever Hell in a Cell. Like it could yeah. possibly be. And it's because it's an amazing match between those two. But yeah, continue. And, and then I think the third is 26, you know, Shawn's last match. You know, there's... It's really hard to even come close to following up, you, you know, the match like you had the year before. Rock and Hogan tried to do it in, uh, in two, after their 2002 match with No Way Out 2003. It was awful. Like, I recommend that you never watch that. <laughs> but, you know, 26, for what it was, was really good. And the storytelling was, again, on point. The fact that Taker uh, could have put him out but didn't want to. And then Michael slaps him across the face. Taker does his little sign and, then, and really puts a tombstone down. I mean, it's that is storytelling in the ring at its best too. Like they knew those two uh, wrestlers or sports entertainment humans knew how to elicit a response from the audience by doing not a lot, like the, the, just the facial expressions. Like in in WrestleMania twenty five, Taker does the tombstone for the first time ever, crosses the thing, does the hair flip, and Sean kicked out, and the look on Taker's face. I mean, he it just it, it told you. This has never happened before. I don't know how, if I could beat him. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was peak storytelling in the sense that they had built not only Taker's character, but also that move. They had built that move into once this happens, it's over. And they really, really punched that home. Every single time it happens, he'd wrap the arms across the chest, like in a coffin. He'd pin him. That's it. You know, it's lights out. And they did some cool stuff with that move over the years. You know, like, don't get me wrong. Like when Kane does it to him. Yep. You know, that's a whole crazy moment where you're like, yeah, not his own move. But I agree. I think that's actually the high. Ironically, Sean kicking out of it. I think that's the highlight for the move itself, because I think that's the it's congruent and it's convalescent with the peak of Shawn Michaels, you know, like him in this crazy at this crazy level of performance and adding to this narrative that like he's the one man taker can't kill. You know, <laughs> like he's yep. the, he's the, he's his enemy because. They're smart about it. They see the kind of matches they have. They see the way that they work together in the ring, which I think you're absolutely right to touch on that. How they were with each other, how they bounced off each other, I thought was great. I think Sean did a lot to elevate Taker in those moments. And I think uh, in the kind of the acting part of it, and I think Taker did a lot to really show off Sean's moves Yep. in the actual technical part of it. And I think to me, that is my number one uh, between those two, because I think it's like, it's got everything that Taker and Sean always brought to the table. It's got the whole thing, you know, the whole package in there because the, you know, it, every element that we're, that we just discussed at length is there in a huge way. You know, like it shows their rivalry. It shows why it works. The acting's on point. The moves are on point. And nobody was harmed in the making of this, <laughs> of this, uh, of this, Barely. of this great match. Right. So 
yeah, I think I really do think that they elevate each other. I think there's a reason why both of them are on both of our lists, maybe in different spots, but they're, they both kind of have to be. And it's a lot of it's sort of because of each other. Let me ask you this, sort of moving on to more pressing topics as far as like his retirement goes. Do you think that his first retirement, quote unquote, in 2013 or whatever it was, do you think that he his legacy might have been in better shape had he not had he stopped wrestling around 2013 2014 do you mean the streak is that what you're asking me well the streak ends right the fact that the streak ends in i think 2014 right yeah if he retires before that is that better is that better for the legacy of the of that happening from you know from wrestlemania you know say he beats cm punk at wrestlemania 29 right yeah and then it's he just walks away into the sunset you know, there's a there's that Shane McMahon thing never happens. That weird match, the streak doesn't end. He just had a lot. I thought it, there was a lot of stuttering after that. You know, like there was a lot of kind of stop start. It just didn't it didn't feel like the same career anymore after that point. You know, and I know he wanted that kind of perfect ending, which to me would have been Sean coming out of retirement and giving him the retirement match that he gave Sean. To be honest with you, which it doesn't seem like that's on the cards anymore. They tried that. Well, there are a million, right? Like it's <laughs> at this point. So, but like, do you think that there was any shine taken off his career after that? Uh, after the streak ended, and he couldn't quite find his like perfect retirement match uh, in that era. So, I think that when the fans talk about this, right, it's a lot of the hindsight is twenty twenty because it, in the moment when you think about it, twenty three has a great match with Batista, twenty four has a great match with Edge, twenty five, twenty six with Sean, twenty seven, twenty eight. With Triple H, with that Hell in a Cell at 28 being an all-time classic. And he's 20-0 and 0 at this point. Yeah, has a great matchup with CM Punk. So you think, okay, this guy can still just show up once a year, and he can do it. And based on, uh, based on the matches that he had with Brock before 30, and even after 30, my gut is if he wasn't severely concussed in that match, it would have been a great match. And it would have been something where he could have felt like he could have walked away because he then elevated a guy that maybe didn't need to be elevated, but in reality, 48-year-old Undertaker is not beating Brock Lesnar in right. anything. I don't care right. if it's rock, paper, scissors, or if it's a wrestling match. I mean, Brock Lesnar was still competing in uh, the UN and competing successfully in the UFC at this point. You know, right. uh, yeah. He was uh, showing off like some true athletic... Uh, uh, you know, cojones in, in another sport. So I think it was unrealistic, but like, just stop then. Right? Just stop. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Just keep the streak alive. You ever seen The Wrestler? The movie yeah. with Mickey Rourke? I yeah. mean, there's a lot of parallels there. And <laughs> yeah, then sure. I think you, even Stone Cold says in The Last Ride, you know, it's like riding the edge of, uh, riding the tip of a lightning bolt. And like, you, there's something about walking up and hearing 30,000 people scream for your entrance. And I do think that his, Sean's last match, and then consequently the last match that they had all three of them in the hell in a cell where Sean was the referee. I think after Brock, he was chasing that. And there just weren't those guys left until he came up against AJ Styles and, and he was sent off the way that he should have been sent off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they got it right in the end. I, you know, in the very end. And I want you to talk about that too, like what you're sort of, impressions were of that the kind of retirement go around they gave him the sort of the go the kobe treatment you know in in uh in wrestling terms and i think to sort of see him say okay you know like the characters laid to rest i think i finally got that retirement that i that i think i deserved it wasn't as 
you know, like you said, I mean, there really just isn't anyone, wasn't anyone to give him that level of send off that he gave Sean, right? Like there's just, there just wasn't anyone to do that for him, which I mean, that's more, I think of a credit to how good that match was, how good those two guys were together. Like we, you know, like we discussed, but he, you know, he went out finally sort of the way he wanted the characters like to rest. He's talking sort of like as himself to all these people that sort of made his career what it was. There's a little bit of revisionist history in it, you know, as there is when like sort of, you know, I mean, it, whenever you get this kind of lap of honor, oh, yeah. I think I think that sort of happens. So what was your impression of like that, the kind of ceremony and uh, and like what, how it all came to an end? Like, did you like it? Were you satisfied with it? Because it doesn't seem like you you thought it went on for too long. I thought maybe it went on for a little bit too long, but. Oh, you mean his, his TED talk? No, no. Oh, I mean, no. I mean the whole. I mean his career. I mean, it, I, you know, quite frankly, oh. I think that there was like we're talking about the stops. Yeah, the, I do want to hear about that, but we're talking about the stop start nature from 2013, 2014 onward. When he gets the AJ Styles match, I do agree with you that that is the best match he's had in years, uh, and the only one that would have probably made sense for him to be his retirement match, like the way he wanted to go out. But uh, before that, there was just you know, there's a lot of stuff. Stop start. What do you think? In the end, were you satisfied? Were you left with like feeling like you wanted more, like you wanted less? And then, yeah, like I'd love to, I'd love to know what your f- feelings were about the sort of long one on one interviews that he was conducting with all the people sitting in the stands um, as he went around. So, this is kind of like a double edged answer. I'm glad that he got the ending that he deserved. I'm just, I don't think it hurts him because of how much equity he built up with everyone uh, with that character. I am sad that it took so long, right? I mean, you think about uh, 2014, he's gone, all of it. He comes back. He, I mean, credit to Bray Wyatt for promoting a, a WrestleMania match without Taker ever showing up the, on a Raw beforehand. That match wasn't good. It was fine. It wasn't awful. Can't go out like that, though. Yeah, Shane match. Can't go out that way. Roman, Roman Reigns, yeah. Nope. I mean... You need to know, and that's when it, that's when it looks like the most like the wrestlers to me is like he looked like he he says it in, in the documentary he looked like fat elves but he was out there he couldn't do any of the things that he needed to do but then you see him a year later against cena cena yeah had they given that 15 20 minutes i think you would have hung it up there and he should have because he looked great he looked excellent in that match and then you have some other examples where they did bring up that you know uh they did bring back sean uh, for DX versus the Brothers of Destruction, yeah, uh, they should, probably should have told him before he shaved his head. But you know, every, <laughs> Kane gets hurt in that match. Triple H tears his tricep, and then you get a guy Sean has been in the ring in, in eight years against a, a beaten down, broken taker. Like, what can you do? Right. You can't get back. You can't get back to that level. He can't pay him back at that point. No. It's not physically possible for anybody. I mean, if you watch that match, and I, I say if you watch it because if you really or having a really good day and want to bring it down, watch yeah. it because you see, like you see Sean, he's the only one in there trying. I mean, yeah. he had been in the ring for eight years and he does a moonsault off the top rope to the outside. And well, he only, had one, he, had, he only had one speed, you know, I, I think that like, <laughs> he, I think that what I think a lot of what I like about Sean Michaels is like, there's only, he only knew one way to do it, you know? And I think that right. it's why, uh, he probably has a really tough time getting from his bed to his shower in the morning, but it's also why, he had probably the longest prime of any of anybody. You know, he kept his prime alive after the next, the, all the next stuff by having classic matches after that. 
So I think, yeah, I think that there's always going to, there's going to be some contrast if you have a bunch of like old dudes in there, but you're right. He did go and do the work and he did come back. And I think he had a great match against Cena. I, to your point, I think if, yeah, if they had to let it go a certain amount of time, I think it would have been a little bit more appropriate, but what about the AJ Styles match? Like, how do you feel about that? Do you think Cena would have been a better way for him to go out? Or do you think that was just scripted the right way? I think uh, that Undertaker was saved. And I don't mean to cause controversy here, but I think the fact that uh, that the pandemic had just started and fans were not, like, were not available, I think that played to a lot of Taker's strengths uh, at that time because he could still do all of the brawling He's a great trash talker, as you can sure. see that match. And he, but he didn't have to go out there in front of 80,000 people and potentially put on a 20-minute like shitty match. They filmed it, and they, I think in that match, it told the story of you know the dead man, the American badass, big evil, and you had a guy like AJ who was willing to do what Sean did in, in you know, 98 and 97, just throw himself around and make Taker look good. I thought that was the perfect way to end uh, the career. I do. You don't think a real live match was sort of owed to his career, though? Like the way that, like, like you said, he looked great in the Cena match. It wouldn't have that been was, a terrible note to go out on. That was a seven-minute match. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, he looked good. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. Do people remember that? You know, like, do people, like, it's just like, if you just, if you can still just play some highlights from it, as opposed to making it work in the pandemic, like, do you think that takes some shine off it or not? Well, I think if you look back at Taker, right, uh, you talk about like his great moments and the things that stick out to you when you think about him. I always think about, to your point, uh, the casket match with Yokozuna, and then they show him on the old bricks Titan Tron, right? That's yeah. a moment. That's theatrics. Yeah. You yeah. think about Buried Alive. You think about when he put uh, Stone Cold on the cross in the Ministry of Darkness. So all those effects, I think have always been a part of his career and to be able to look tough, look like a badass and still have all those things in a really unique way. I mean, because there was another cinematic match on that card, uh, the uh, Bray Wyatt's Funhouse, which was, which would Cena, which was entertaining, but in all the wrong ways. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch Taker and uh, AJ's match, you are thoroughly entertained. Are you not entertained? I just watched Gladiator the other day. So good. <laughs> did, he, did he deserve the you know the roar of eighty thousand people? Yes, definitely, of course. But do you? I mean, I think that there's always that question of what happens if something goes wrong in one of those situations, and now they're just clapping because his name is Anderson, not because right. of what actually happened in the ring. And like, how many more chances do you get after that? You know, right. how many more tries? How many more bites of the apple do you get? Before yeah. you gotta hang it up on something shitty because you're a billion years old. You get, I mean, he got a standing ovation after the Roman Reigns match, and that was a terrible match. Yeah, he's always going to though, right? He's like he right. was, uh, he's the most cemented fan favorite that there ever was. Like, there's his what when he was fighting in that era from probably 2015 to 2020, like post streak, he was fighting legends matches. You know what I mean? Like he was that was sort of a retirement tour, you know, for better or for worse during that time because once the streak's over, I mean, it's there's no you're not building any new narratives at this point you're just playing off what what's already been established with the undertaker which is you can establish quite a bit quite a bit's been established and people fucking love them so you can drop them in to other storylines and enhance those storylines you can drop them into other matches and enhance those matches just by the presence of him being there and he earned that clout you know i think he earned that but yeah i agree i think it i think what you're kind of getting to is it would have gotten sadder and sadder as time went on if he hadn't hung it up at the time but let's talk about his, uh, as you so eloquently described his <laughs> TED talk. 
<laughs> at the end i mean we're laughing but i mean he deserves his little lap of honor right yes. I, I mean based on everything that we're talking about he deserves to to sort of take in the moment as he sees fit what did you think about the stuff he was saying uh i thought it was kind of funny that he it, he finds it difficult to not like be go kind of in and out of character when he's on the mic you know because he's like that's his comfort zone but what did you think like i thought he had a cool moment with stone cold a lot of people said we're saying it was a little tacky but i thought that was a genuine moment i think he was really paying him a compliment as a professional so talk to me about how you were feeling. I mean, you were 10 years old, sitting in your bedroom again, like watching The Undertaker ride off into the sunset. Oh, yeah. I mean, so <laughs> everything, that, everything that I just said about that, that AJ match is true. But to have the, a 30-year career, your last match being uh, in front of nobody, you're announcing your retirement you know, 30 years after you show up in Survivor Series in front of nobody. Then if you get to be near your home, like in your home state with 100,000 people, 20,000 people there at the Hall of Fame, you can do whatever you want. And I love uh, the nods to, to Yoko. I loved, you know, we looked at Sean and, and Triple H and said, you know, thank you. It's not a surprise to me that he's a really good speaker, right? Like he can, uh, he, it's not one of his deficiencies. Like most big men right. can't do that. Right. I thought he did a great job summing everything up. Uh, and then, you know, being the old worker that he is at the end he's you know never say never and it was put the hat on but please like mark calloway please say <laughs> never <laughs> yeah he's too old he's too old it's not i also really enjoyed uh at wrestlemania when you know both nights but, but night one when his music hit and they introduced the hall of fame and like you actually had sixty thousand people on, on their feet he he did deserve that mm -hmm. yeah i mean we we're i mean in that moment we were all back at that uh back at that yokozuna match you know when he comes up on the tv <laughs> and like with the red background and you hear that music and you're like oh man this guy's here to stay that haunted me by the way for such a long time oh dude kid. yeah like, he was scary when you were a kid he was like right? full-on like horror movie scary like he was like look at this lurking giant and so was like the whole paul bear thing i mean yeah maybe it looks silly when you're looking back on it now it you know through the lens of like a 2022 you know the world is fucked and everything is crazy but when you're 10 and you're watching that like you're alive you know like right. you're afraid for your life for this guy and he's dead and he's yeah, exactly <laughs> you know and you're, you're with him you know that like for better or for worse I, I say this to you guys about tom brady for uh you know for better or for worse that guy's been around most of my life you know and doing stuff in the sport most of my life like since i gained consciousness pretty much onward the undertaker's been there or thereabouts doing something you know uh in wrestling like having these moments Across, like you said at the very start of this show, across multiple eras, nobody ever, no, no one else can match that. Nobody else can match career longevity. And I think, you know, you can say there's some people out there that might say like, oh, well, that's why he gets the credit is just that career longevity. And I think that's okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. if that's the case. I think that's really cool and impressive that he did that. You know, I mean, there, there have been people that have been around for a long time that are terrible. Right. Yeah. But I mean, when you just think about it in, in this sense, if you were, let's say there's a chance there is a 40 year old dad with his 10 year old son at Survivor Series 1990. And that same person was now a 70-year-old grandfather with his 30-year-old son or 40-year-old son and his 10-year-old grandson. All looking at the same guy. Right. Like he, and he carried that company through, through so much. Like before there was Austin, there was always Taker. Uh, you know, Jim Ross used to always uh, say, he's the conscience of WWE. And he was like, he was the reason why people like the, the back didn't fall apart. And he had shitty storyline after shitty storyline. 
but he never wavered. And he also, uh, I know that we'll wrap up soon, I'm sure, uh, but I can go on for hours about this. Well, I mean, this is actually one of what I wanted to talk to you about. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say. That was going to be the thing I wanted to sort of end on is the idea of uh, a wrestling, a world wrestling organization without The Undertaker, the idea of who he was in the locker room, who he was in the back room, and the sort of amount of times he kept what could very easily have very like have fallen apart completely at the seams. He kept it. He seems to keep it together from all the stories that you hear about what he was like as the, the back room, the locker room leader. And what does it look like going forward in an era without him? Because we haven't had to imagine it for so long. So yeah, th- this is all what I want to hear. I want to hear you, what you have to say about this. Yeah. So I think, you know, when he, when he comes into WWE, you know, the, the, the locker room leaders at the time were Hogan, Andre, Savage, and they all age out. And now it's it, but he worked with them. So like he was there to experience that. Right. And then now there's the new generation where it's him, Kevin Nash, Bret Hart, Sean, and then it's Austin rock, but there's always that guy that's been there with the old man, uh, as he calls him, you know, since 1990. And, you know, whether it was having to face an imposter undertaker at SummerSlam, uh, and the guy, you know, at that point, wasn't a great worker. I'm talking about the imposter to Giant Gonzalez, to King Kong Bundy, who was 10 years past his prime, he kept showing up. And then you, when you go into 2002, and he's been, you know, the American badass for uh, two years at that point, which by the way, that just shows you how much he cared about the business and how much he respected the fans because, you know, Hogan did the same thing for 20 years and only changed because he smelled money. It didn't really work either with the Hollywood Hulk Hogan stuff. That didn't even really work. But it caused like it caused a pretty big thing, right? Like that sure. NWO, like, but I would say Taker wasn't asked to change his character, but knew that it needed to, or he was just going to get lost in the shuffle. He did it. And then he went back to it in 2004. But you think about the fact that you have a guy that worked with Hogan, was around Andre, worked with Warrior, Savage, that's now working with Cena, Orton, Roman. Like, so I think it's a, it's scary to think that he's no longer in the locker room. But in reality, he hasn't been a locker room leader since 2013. Like he hasn't been traveling with them. Now, when he shows up, he'll still come in the same respect. But I think, and I, maybe I'm giving him too much credit for being selfless. Maybe one of the reasons that he held on for so long was that he wanted there to be people there that were now locker room leaders that worked with him and saw the way that it was supposed to be done. But the, there would be... The WWE would probably not be around uh, in its current form if it weren't for if it weren't for them to take. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's very easy lines to draw from uh, from moments. I mean, it's not as if you're dealing with a bunch of accountants back there either. You know, I mean, I think people could maybe come back and say like, well. Yeah, he oversaw all these eras as the quote unquote locker room leader, but like a lot of shit happened back there too. You know, a lot of real stuff, like a lot of stuff that wasn't, you know, works. And it's like, I think, you know, I, you're dealing with a bunch of fucking madmen back there. You know, it's like you're not, you're right. herding cats at the end of the day. So I think what he did was he kept a baseline uh, and he, and eventually he sort of became the example. And I think that there's nobody, you know, to your point, there's nobody coming up in wrestling that's going to come in and say, Who's that guy? You know what I mean? Like you, you right. sort of need that. I don't think he ever sort of aged into being a mascot or anything along those lines. I still think he had like, you know, things to say. And I think people listened to him when he talked, but I think he grew into that role too, uh, which I think you were getting at 
coming from the Hogan era. And then, you know, eventually even facing off against Hollywood Hulk Hogan and sort of working through those moments, you know, and everything coming full circle. Having that through line, I think, was is so beneficial right. to wrestling across those uh, those years. Like you can point to every era and The Undertaker probably has a great match in there. I mean, you think about it like this, right? Uh, in one of his, in his first title win, he beat Hogan in 1991. Hogan then leaves you know, like a year or two later and he goes off to WCW to try and take Vince down. And in his second, in his first title match that, uh, as the Undisputed Champion in 2002, who does he go up against? Taker, the guy that never left. It's still here. The company man. But he really was that. That's not even part of the character. He really was that. Like, as I think you're to your point. Yeah, I think he's just loyal. Now, loyal to a fault. You know, Vince uh, is what he is. But when it comes to that character, that character was Vince's idea, but I'd say nine out of 10 people would have taken that gimmick and run into the ground within a year and Taker extended it for 30. Yeah. Yeah, that that gimmick too. You know, it's not right. as if he ever, you know, we talk at length about on this show about wrestlers losing their way when they turn heel or when they change their characters. Like it's usually, I would say not even often, I would say usually the kiss of death to a big name wrestler to to switch in the wrong way, right? And I think that it being his idea saved him a little bit, you know, it, it, him sort of moving organically. I think he did a really good job of recognizing what the brand was when he yep. when he did the American Badass and like what you know what we were all like in two thousand and two. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. this is the shit that we were into. Like everybody was wearing carpenter jeans, and listening to tracks. You know what I mean? Like it just made sense. Like, it, it, and I think to read the sort of read the uh, sociolo- um like as a sociologist, like to sort of read uh, society like that and be like, okay, I can make a new character, but I'm going to put a lot of thought into it and I'm going to be a reflection of the society we're sort of in right now because he still needs to fit this, 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 and this criteria in order for me to be able to do it, you know, uh, for, for, the, for Taker to be able to sort of be malleable through those things, but also for it to work. Like when Brett turned heel, it didn't make any sense. You know, it, did, it just, it didn't make any sense. He didn't want to. He didn't want to do it, so he didn't put enough thought into it, and it ended up just wrecking the Hitman character essentially, and, and that being sort of the end of Brett, right? Where you know you've seen it happen to, I mean, I like, I mean, it seems you seem to think the Hollywood Hulk Hogan thing worked monetarily. Maybe it did. I don't know the numbers, but it annoyed me when it happened because to me it was like, come on, it's like that's the great American hero, that's the good guy, that's the stay in school kids guy, you know, like that right. doesn't make any sense. Like I hate this, you know. Maybe that's me. Maybe that's nostalgia. But when Taker did it, I think he does it seamlessly because I think. We kind of got to the bottom of it. It's was the, was Taker the best character ever? Probably. Was he the best at what you described the theatrics of it? Quite possibly. Quite possibly he was. I think that he makes number one on some lists. Maybe not the overall goat for us. Maybe for other people. And I, it would make sense to me why he would. But I think on certain criteria, I think he's number one with a bullet. And I think yeah, there's certain things that you just sort of can't take from him. And I think we're all grateful to have had him. To be quite honest with you, I think that there's stuff you can yeah. say. There's negatives that you can say, but I'm just happy he was here overall, you know, and I'm sad to see him go. It makes me feel like I'm getting old. From a performance standpoint, like, I, I don't think there's not very much that you can say negative about him, right? The, the, now, he had bad matches, sure, but I mean, he's not a guy that could have a, that, that could have a good match with the broomstick. He's not a Brett. He's not a Sean. He's not, a, he's not an AJ, right? But I mean, you look at, at the overall content of his work, you know, 2002 when he, uh, at WrestleMania, when he fights Flair, Flair was not Ric Flair. He would, I mean, it's, I feel like this happened to Undertaker all the time. Like what you're describing. I feel like it happened to him so often. 
that were not as confident as they once were. Mm-hmm. And then he pulled a great match out of them. Right. I think he was a good caretaker wrestler in that sense. Like, I think he was able yeah. to sort of be like, all right, come on, we're going to go through the beats here. I got you, you know? Right. And, yeah. and you know, that, that respect wasn't always shown to him by others in the ring. Like, there, I mean, he should never have been in the ring with guys like the great Cowley. But I, I, yeah, I can go on. I would just say it's real. Wrestling is a really hard business to stay in uh, and both mentally, physically, whatever it might be. And he got in when people were still doing all the crazy shit behind the scenes and he's still there he's still around and he made it and now he's you know helping out at the performance center i think you know i just think longevity wise there's never going to be another run like him there's never going to be someone with such sustained uh with such a sustained character that interest and yeah i mean it felt the when he retired i've never felt older <laughs> yeah. no, I'm, right. I, we, you know, we both bought houses. We're both married. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when a guy that we started watching when we were three yep. hangs it up and we're 32 and 33, yep. you're like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, what else is there to say? Uh, a guy that goes from matches in the early 90s against, you know, uh, Jimmy Snuka and, uh, <laughs> and Jake the Snake Roberts and Giant Gonzalez and those that, you know, the start of the streak all the way through like the canes of the world and then to finish it off with a match against CM Punk who's like modern era <laughs> you know what i mean like full right. full on modern era um uh, still and uh and i think for that to be the streak that by itself is a hall of fame career and he he did stuff um before that and after that so i credit to the undertaker we're sorry to see you go i enjoyed your ted talk um taught me a lot uh, and i think you taught us all <laughs> a lot i think you taught us all a lot about how to act in 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 business you know because if you uh if you take the taker approach, you might have a long and illustrious career. So he's terrible. He's terrible in business. Uh, is he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, is it, did, did, did he invest poorly or something? Yeah, yeah. He started like real estate places. They, they, didn't, they didn't really work out. Oh but Undertaker, god. the character. Oh my god! I, I, like I, Trump stakes. This yeah, is, to, this is to, not... to, well, these were real. Uh, but to, <laughs> but, to button it up, though, like you, when you say you're sorry to see him go, I'll just add to that. I'm glad that you were able to see us. Sorry to see you go. Yeah, and yeah. For this sure. wasn't this wasn't a post mortem. Yeah. you know uh, uh induction he deserves it. He, like he deserves it definitely and i hope he has an ice bath installed in his house uh somewhere he's gonna need it <laughs> i hope he has a sauna or like one of those one of those like cool your blood machines or whatever hyperbaric chambers now. yeah there you go <laughs> whatever's trendy now he's gonna need all of it and a, like a daily massage because there's no way that guy doesn't feel like shit right when he wakes up in the morning but thank you for that undertaker thanks for feeling that way for the fans across such a long and illustrious career all right for um, kayfabe critics I am DK Sizzle, Dave Clark, uh, and for Mike Marcangelo, who did all the heavy lifting on this show as usual, uh, I say thank you for listening and good night. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.